Alright, well, let's take a minute and pray together as we get ready to read the scriptures today. I'll lead us. Lord Jesus, what a, what a great song we were just singing. What a great prayer we were praying to you. That if we could trade everything for one thing only, and we trade it all for you. Help us now to mean that by the posture of our hearts as we learn from the scriptures. The Jesus we want to be given is the real Jesus who actually exists, not the one that our own hearts or minds would create. We might be distorted and and shaped to look more like us than reality. So, Lord, it's in the scriptures that we learn who you are. We learn why you came into this world. It's in the scriptures that we learn what you did. It's in the scriptures that we learn why it matters. The scriptures without your Holy Spirit would only be empty words to us. So today we pray that you would give us yourself. Jesus, give us Jesus. Through the scriptures and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Softening our hearts so that we are ready to listen, to learn, to embrace all that the scriptures teach us about you. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So we're continuing our series through the book of Revelation, kind of taking a a highlight from each chapter each week. This week we're on chapter 14. We're in a section of the book where we, we, we run into two themes. One is this ongoing conflict between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our God and of his Christ is the way um, one chapter puts it. This ongoing conflict that leads to persecution for those who follow Jesus and temptation, pressure on followers of Jesus to compromise their allegiance to him. And that conflict, that persecution, that pressure lasts throughout the whole time between Christ's first coming and his return. And so in chapters 12 and 13, we read about that, this kind of grim news of this great dragon, Satan, who's making war against God's people, and he enlists these two great beasts, these fearsome allies, to pressure God's people and persecute them and, and to promote falsehood throughout the whole world. And if you just read those two chapters, 12 and 13, you'd think, man, we're doomed. It's all bad news. It's all bad news. But then you turn a corner in chapter 14. Good news. Many people will faithfully endure this time of trial and pressure and temptation. And they will remain faithful to Jesus. In fact, in uh, chapter 14, there's this one verse that describes the people that Jesus has redeemed. And it says, here's who they are and what they are like. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. 
And so you've got this theme of conflict, persecution, but some enduring it, following Jesus wherever he leads them. And now we're kind of turning a corner in this section of Revelation where we start to hear an announcement, not of patterns that continue during the whole period between his first and second coming, but as his second coming comes closer and nearer, what are some of the things that will happen? And that's going to be presented through three announcements made by angels in the scripture text today. The first one will say there's good news, this gospel, this saving message about Jesus being proclaimed to every nation on the earth. And the second angel will come and say, hey, good news, there's going to be an end to the powers that pressure and tempt followers of Jesus. And then the third angel will say, now the end will come, time of final judgment. You might hear something this morning that you don't agree with. You might hear things this morning that you don't like. Or you might hear things that you say, I I believe them, but only with tears. Whatever you hear this morning, don't fail to hear this invitation to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Let's read together from Revelation chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second followed saying, fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is the word of the Lord. When I was graduating from seminary, there were these um, ordination exam prep guides going around. 
among the seniors. Like, you know, sometime in the next year or two, you're going to be examined for ordination and you should be getting ready. Here's a, here's a practice exam. And some of them were helpful and some, some of them were kind of jokes. They were mocking the process a little bit. And one of them, you know, the last question was define the universe and give three examples. Which is less funny now that we're in the 21st century and all the movies are about multiverses. But, you know, way back then in the 20th century, we still believed there was only one universe. So if you had to define the, the whole universe in one sentence, you know, how would you do it? It would be hard. Similarly, if you had to define what, what is Christianity in one sentence... What does it mean to be a Christian in one sentence? Gosh, how would you do it? It takes a whole Bible with 66 books and thousands of years worth of study and preaching. We still haven't said everything that could be said about what it means to follow Jesus. But I suppose if you only had one sentence, Revelation 14 verse 4 would be a pretty good one. Be a Christian means to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. The Lamb is a symbol for Jesus in the book of Revelation and elsewhere in the Bible. Follow Jesus wherever he goes. That's a pretty good definition of what it means to be a Christian. It's a pretty good definition of all of Christianity. Whatever else it might mean, it means following the Lamb wherever he goes. So what I'd like to do this morning is to look at the messages of these three angels. Now remember, John, writing the book of Revelation, is seeing visions, and, and these visions are full of symbols. So it's, it's not as though we're to expect, you know, kind of um, we're at the beach and one of those airplanes flies over with the banner behind it trying to get you to buy crab legs at Crazy Joe's. I don't know why naming your place crazy is supposed to be a way to sell stuff, but it is, right? There's not going to be an angel flying over over the world with a banner reading like that. These are visions using symbols, and angels are messengers. So what is, what is God's message to the world as we live in this in-between time between the first and second comings of Jesus, and as every day gets us closer to that second coming, what are the messages I'd like to look at those three messages, those three angels, and what they say in terms of following the Lamb wherever he goes. Let's look at the message of the first angel. And let me encourage you to follow the Lamb in spreading the gospel to the whole world. That's the message of the first angel. Everything seems to be going terribly in Revelation chapters 12 and 13. This great dragon, Satan, is making war against Christ and his people in chapter 12. And uh, he is full of great wrath and fury. And in chapter 13, these beasts, the Antichrist and this false prophet, um, that represent this, this, well, we'll talk more about what it represents later. It has to do with the second angel's message. But whatever they're doing in in the world, it's having great impact. They are leading all nations astray. Authority was given to this first beast. 
over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Oh man, it's all bad news. And then in chapter 14, we turn the corner and we start to hear hope again. And this angel flying overhead in verse 6 says, I have an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. Wait a minute, I thought all who dwell on earth are worshiping this beast. Yeah, but God is sending a message into the world to say, turn, turn back to me away from that. You don't have to worship that. Be- Who's the beast? What does he stand for? We'll get there. Okay, angel, to whom should this good news about, about Jesus turning people back to God, to whom should that go? To every nation and tribe and language and people. So to follow the Lamb means to have a vision for the spread of good news about Jesus to the whole world before the judgment comes. And the rest of the book of Revelation is going to describe that. But before that, this good news about Jesus has to go to the whole world, proclaiming to everyone an opportunity to to repent, to turn back to God. That's the, the message of verse 7. Fear God and give him glory. Worship him. That that beast, who or whatever that beast represents, we'll get there, is not the only thing in the world you can worship. Worship something real. It's not too late. Turn back to worship God. Following the lamb wherever he goes means listening to what Jesus himself taught about this. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 to 14, make a note of that if you want to. Matthew 24, start with verse 3. And his disciples say, hey, Jesus, when will the end come? And Jesus starts to give them a description. He says, first of all, normal suffering is not a sign of the end, right? Wars, famines, earthquakes, that's just life in a fallen world. But as the end comes near, here's what's going to happen. False prophets will arise and lead many people astray, and the love of many who believe in me will grow cold. But, Jesus says, this hopeful message, many will endure to the end faithfully, and they will be saved. And Jesus says back in Matthew 24, he says, The gospel will be preached as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this angel is simply saying in John's vision what Jesus himself said. That before he returns, Jesus' plan and purpose is for the saving message about himself to go out into the whole world. Jesus, when will the end come? Well, it won't come before the church has finished its mission. Jesus talks about that mission using an image of feasting at a table. In Luke chapter 13, his disciples come to him with a different question. This time the question isn't, when will the end come? The question is, will those who are saved be many or few, Jesus? It'll be few, won't it? That's kind of the way they lean into the question. And Jesus says... Follow the narrow way. Come through the narrow door. And then he says, one day, the owner of the house will get up and lock the door. It'll be too late to come in the door. 
at that moment. So come through the narrow door while it's open. He's the narrow door. Trust me, follow me now. One day there's a day of judgment coming and the door will be locked. And some of you think you're going to be on the inside feasting, but you're going to be on the outside. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus said. And then he said, but many will come from north and south and east and west to feast at the kingdom, feast at the table in the kingdom of God. Right? One day the door will be locked, but before then the church has a message. Go to the whole world and invite everybody to the feast. Following the lamb wherever he goes means that we as his people have a mission to invite the world to the feast. If you read Intel's mission, vision, value statements, you walk away with this conclusion. We want more people to know God. We don't say that because we think we're good at it. We're not boasting and saying, hey, we're, we're the greatest evangelists ever. Heard of Billy Graham? Pish posh. We're in town. You know, Apostle Paul? Moron. Princess Bride reference for those of you who aren't in the know. We're in town. Wow, we don't say this because we're boasting. We just want to follow the lamb wherever he goes. And the lamb says, there's an eternal gospel. That needs to be proclaimed to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And that doesn't exclude Atlanta. This mission is not something that happens just in other places. We're part of it right here. Because we follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Second angel, let's follow the Lamb. And longing for an end to temptation. Now you can't see this because sermons are for the ear, not the eye. If you're learning to preach out there, write that sentence down and let's have a longer conversation about it sometime. Sermons are for the ear, not the eye. So you can't tell that in my notes the word temptation has a capital T on it. Fathers of the Lamb, we're longing for an end to the great temptation that is behind all other temptations. We're longing for an end to the pressure to give in to that temptation. What is it? Well, the secret, it's not such a secret if, if there's a hint that takes us straight to the relevant text in the Old Testament. But here's the second angel crying, fallen, fallen is, here's, here's the secret to that ultimate temptation, Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So later in Revelation, that image of Babylon uh, riding this great beast that came out of the sea and, and inviting the kings of the earth to indulge with her in all of her extravagance. We'll unpack that later in other chapters. What I want to focus on right now is the fact that this phrase, Babylon the Great, occurs only two times in the whole Bible. Here and in the book of Daniel. 
one of the keys to understanding the book of Revelation is knowing that you've got to know your Old Testament, and especially the book of Daniel. Well, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, we're listening to the king of, fittingly, Babylon, a man named Nebuchadnezzar. He's walking on the roof of his royal palace and looking out over his kingdom, and the king says, Is not this Babylon the great, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I was the cause of all of this, and I was the goal of all of this. You hear it? That's the great temptation behind every other temptation. I'm at the center of everything. Contrast that with biblical faith. Biblical faith says there is someone outside of me so good and so glorious and so lovely in and of himself. He, does, he is lovely without my being there to say that he's lovely. He was great before I was there to acknowledge his greatness. There is someone outside of me so good, so glorious, so lovely in himself that I am drawn irresistibly to put my confidence in him. His greatness is not a result of my approval of him. He didn't win universe's best talent competition because I voted for him, right? (laughs) My confidence in him is a response to his greatness. The opposite of that biblical faith. Can I use the word autonomy? Autos in Greek, self. Namos, law. I am a law to myself. The self is supreme. I will decide what priorities govern my life. If it meets my approval, I'll embrace it. If it doesn't, I'll reject it. That's the great temptation behind every other temptation is to put ourselves at the center and to say, if I want to do this, I'll do it. Well, you're going to yield to whatever the little T temptation is. If you've already given in to the big T temptation of, I am at the center, I'm supreme, then I will do whatever I darn well please. And you could have a person saying, you know what, I won't murder anybody today because I decided murder is bad. Well, thank you. I like not being murdered, but guess what? If that's your rationale, you've already bought into the big lie. Murder isn't wrong because you decided it was wrong. It's wrong because it contradicts the character of the God who is outside of you. So even our behaviors aren't always a good indicator of whether we've bought in to this capital T temptation and that temptation toward autonomy that is the spirit of the beast the antichrist from revelation chapter 13 you see that God out there he is not the center of everything we are And so we get this phrase that takes us right back to Babylon right back to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 430 Babylon the great will one day fall this human tendency to say, I am at the center of everything, will one day come to an end and all of the subtle 
pressures that you and I face every day to adopt that outlook on life, all that pressure will be over and you won't have to keep fighting it. Because one day, the voice of the beast will fall and be silenced. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but I'm going to transition from talking about that to talking about Disney World. I'll give you a second to figure it out while I drink some water. Trisha and I went to Disney World a couple of weeks ago to celebrate our 30th anniversary. We had gone there to celebrate our 15th anniversary, so it felt right. Plus, new Star Wars stuff, we hadn't seen it yet. That's all I'm going to say about that. If you need more explanation, more explanation won't help. So we go to see the new fireworks display at the Magic Kingdom. It was the voice of the beast. It was this capital T temptation in a multi-million dollar production with amazing vocalists singing in the background, outstanding production quality. But it was this message. It was different from previous shows we've seen at Disney. The previous shows kind of had this theme. There's something outside of you. And if you can tap into that, it will help you realize your dreams. Now, it it wasn't based on anything very profound or deep, but at least it got that much right about the universe. That, that, That if you want your dreams to come true, you're gonna need something from outside of you to help you along the way. And so there's Jiminy Cricket outside of Pinocchio's head helping him along the way. And there's the fairy godmothers, you know, bippity-boppity-booping people and good things start to happen. There's Tinkerbell with a little dust because you're not getting off the ground without some help from outside of you. She's got to sprinkle the magic dust on you first. Something outside of you has to help you. But now if you go see this, display the title of the whole thing is you are the magic the magic isn't outside of you anymore now disney didn't come up with this idea it's been around since humanity has been around genesis chapter three to be precise i am the center did not i make all of this this subtle shift that happens in our heads that says not it is good, therefore I will approve it, but I have approved it, therefore it is good. Because I am the magic. Interestingly, I mean, Disney does a lot of research, right? They're researching what would appeal to the kind of people who come to this place in the 21st century, and they come from all over the world. Isn't it interesting that the outcome of all that research is we think the way to appeal to the broadest audience on this planet right now is to tell them that all they need is right inside of them. There's not something outside to look toward anymore. It's inside. 
That is this great temptation, capital T, toward autonomy. The self is supreme. Following the Lamb wherever He goes means that we long for a day when human beings, including ourselves, are no longer seeking that kind of autonomy and independence from God. When we're no longer saying, I am at the center, I was the cause, I am the goal, when we are saying, Oh God, forgive us for yielding to the pressure to see anything as supreme over you. We long for the day when people aren't pressured to think that way anymore. We long for the day when human beings know better than to spend millions of dollars trying to convince little children that all they need is inside of them. But isn't it just harmless, innocent fun? You know what? It can be. But also, it's not. We long for the day when we can rest from that battle. And instead of having to constantly fight against that Nebuchadnezzar syndrome in my own heart, I can just rest and delight in the goodness and the glory that are outside of me. And the Lamb who is worthy of all my affection. There are other things that will cause the world to become worse if I put too much attention and focus on them. But if I put too much attention and focus on Jesus, the world won't get worse, it will get better. He's the only thing like that. He's the only one like that. Every other secret lover I have can only bring me shame and pain. But I can love Jesus as much as I want. I don't have to be secret about it and it will not bring shame and pain. It will bring joy. Following the lamb wherever he goes means we want the gospel to go to the whole world and we want that temptation put ourselves at the center of everything to finally be laid to rest. There's a third angel. I encourage you today, follow the Lamb by trusting who He is. Trust Jesus to be a teacher who teaches truthfully. The third angel's message talks about the eternal destiny of people who continue to worship the beast, people who continue to embrace this attitude that says, you know what, God is not at the center, I am. I am the final measure of what's good and what's not. What happens if the day of judgment comes and our hearts are still in that posture. Jesus is a teacher who teaches truthfully about that question. Jesus doesn't teach about medieval torture chambers, Christians sitting in stands spectating, watching others in misery and rejoicing over it. The scriptures don't teach that. The scriptures use a lot of symbols to talk about the reality of eternity apart from God's goodness. Symbols like 
fire and symbols like physical suffering. But one of the things we've been talking about throughout our series in Revelation, let's not confuse symbols with the reality that they represent. Jesus doesn't teach all of the errors that Christians in his name have taught about eternal judgment. Jesus also doesn't teach a modern sanitized version of himself. There are a lot of Christians saying now, or people who would call themselves Christians, saying Jesus never would judge anyone. It's simply not true. If we follow the Lamb wherever he goes, we listen to Jesus. He speaks honestly about judgment. He believes the scriptures. And so, you know, we we read the imagery of, of Revelation 14 that talks about smoke of going up forever and ever and having no rest day and night. Those phrases are lifted straight from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 34, chapter, uh, chapter 34, verse 10, if you want to check my math, is one of the resources. Jesus believed the Scriptures. Jesus believed the Scriptures on which these images and symbols are based. And he spoke honestly about judgment. In John chapter 5, Jesus said these words. The Father has given the Son, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this. Don't be surprised, Jesus says. An hour is coming when everyone who is in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus spoke honestly about a coming judgment. He's a teacher who teaches truthfully. Follow the Lamb by trusting Him to be that teacher. Even if He teaches you some things that you don't like, some things that are hard to hear, some things that bring tears. Follow the Lamb by trusting him to be a redeemer who loves perfectly whatever Jesus said, whatever his word teaches about judgment and hell, he says, in the context of love. He calls us to love our neighbors. He doesn't say, if you think your neighbor is going to be on the wrong side of judgment one day, you're free from having to love them. He doesn't say that. He's in charge of final judgment. Our calling is to love our neighbors, no matter who and no matter what. Jesus even says, love people who are persecuting you, not just people who don't share your faith, but people who hate your faith so much they would give you a hard time about it and maybe even cut your head off over it. Well, surely, Jesus, those are people who are going to be on the wrong side of judgment day, right? And I don't have to love them. Jesus says, no. Love your neighbors, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Whatever the Bible says about eternal judgment, it doesn't say it as a license for us to hate other people. The same Jesus who talked about being the judge 
The same Jesus who told parables about sitting on his throne and separating sheep from goats wept over the city of Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19, if you want to check me. He got to the city of Jerusalem before he was going to die and he wept because the city would not embrace him. And even on the cross, he prayed, Luke chapter 23, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The same Savior who spoke of himself as being the judge as he was dying. Pray for the forgiveness of those who are crucifying him. He's a teacher who teaches truthfully, and so he talks about hard things honestly. And he's a redeemer who loves perfectly. So perfectly that he drank the very cup of wrath that this passage talks about. Verse 10 talks about drinking the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. An image that Jesus would have been familiar with from lots of Old Testament passages. And he prayed about it the night before he died. Three times he prayed about it. Father, if it's your will, may this cup pass from me. If you don't want to follow it, Jesus who speaks without compassion and without mercy and without love and who delights in the sufferings of others and who talks about suffering and wrath from a safe distance, then I'm with you. I don't want to follow that Jesus either because human beings made that Jesus up. There is no such Jesus. The Jesus who actually exists spoke about wrath and suffering and judgment as one who stepped into it and said, Father, for the redemption of others, I will drink from the cup of your wrath and I will drain it to its last drop so that all who trust in me, when that cup is placed in their hands, they would turn it up and find there's nothing there. Because out of my great love, I have endured that judgment in their place. You have to undergo a great conversion to become a Christian. At some point, you have to say, I don't want to be at the center anymore. I am not the magic. Jesus is outside of me. He's my redeemer. You have to go undergo that great conversion. But then there are other smaller conversions you have to go through. I went through one as a college student. I started to realize I was loving Jesus just with my brain and not with my whole heart. And I realized it in a moment like this when a professor from Westminster Seminary was talking about Jesus drinking the cup of wrath. And as that man spoke about the love of Christ with tears in his eyes, streaming down his face, I began to realize, Jesus, I've not loved you like this. I've loved you from a safe distance. 
just a part of me. I want to love you with my whole heart. I got extra credit that day, right? I, I went back to the 11 o'clock service and heard the sermon a second time. I'm just joking about extra credit, by the way. It doesn't work that way. Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Come to a place where you love Him so much that there are no other hands to which you would want to entrust the eternal destiny of every person you've ever known and loved. Jesus, are there any hands more kind and compassionate and merciful than yours? Are there any hearts wiser, more holy, more just, more righteous than yours? Is there anyone else I would rather entrust these matters too. They're so serious. They can be so painful. Is there anyone else than the Lamb who drank this cup himself? No. Who would you want to trust to hold the power of thunder and lightning in their hand? I mentioned recently I've been reading some books about revival. And one of them, the editor of the book, talks about a Scottish pastor named William Arnaud. He lived in the 1800s. His preaching woke up a lot of sleepy Scottish Christians who said, we've been loving you with just our minds, just our brains. We want to love you with all that we are. And he told a story about William Arnaud once preaching on a passage of Scripture like this one that talked about eternal judgment. Arnaud stopped after he read the text and he said, these words are full of love because they were uttered by Christ so that whoever heard them might escape and never come. To this place of torment. So that whoever, Jesus talked about the cup of wrath so that whoever hears him talking about it would never have to drink it, but would turn to him before it's too late. I'm paraphrasing now. But, but Arnaud talked about a thunderbolt. He said, in mercy, Christ hurls this thunderbolt, not at people, but on their path to make them stop and turn to him. And he said, no hand but the hand of Christ would have power to wield that thunderbolt. And no heart but the heart of Christ would use it to turn people toward himself. The more you love your neighbor the harder it becomes to take seriously what the Scriptures teach. Not all those we know and love follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And yet, 
to what other heart than the heart of Christ would I entrust the eternal destiny of every person that I love? There is power and goodness and glory in Christ outside of me. I'm drawn to a place of confidence in Him, to trust Him, even with the hardest of truths, not because He meets my standards in those areas, but because He has shown Himself to be a most glorious, wise, merciful, just. Let's follow the Lamb wherever He goes.